1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Uh, Today I'm delighted to talk again to Dr. James Tabor. You're most welcome, sir.
0: Thank you. Love to talk to you, Paul. It's always fun. Fun and enlightening.
1: Oh, a wonderful combination. (laughs) Um, For those who don't recall, James retired last year as a full professor from the Department of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. That's in the United States, obviously where he taught Christian origins and ancient Judaism for 33 years. Among James's publications include over 50 published articles, as well as nine academic books, and he is a popular public lecturer, often consulted by the national and international media, for example, Time, Newsweek, New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street, and many others. James has a professional blog that deals with biblical studies, as well as a popular YouTube channel, Uh, James table videos I will link to these in the description below today we will be discussing an individual who has had more influence than anyone else in Christianity after Jesus the apostle Paul some say he's the real founder of Christianity but who was the authentic Paul are all the letters in the Bible that claim to be from him authentic And what do we really know about Paul, and how do we know it? And James has kindly agreed to discuss uh, this fascinating subject. So over to you, James.
0: Thank you, Paul. That's it's a great topic. I brought along my leather-bound Bible to make a point here. This has the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, and the Apocrypha. It's an R S V Very
1: impressive, and I got used it used it for years. And
0: it's a show and tell in the sense that this can really lead you astray for this reason, the way it's arranged. There are 13 letters that have Paul's name on them in the New Testament. And after you go through the Gospels and the book of Acts, just opening the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, then you get Romans. And then for 13 sections, you get these letters. So it would not be uh, inexcusable for someone to begin reading the New Testament and they start with Matthew and they want to read through, get an idea. Just like if you would read the scriptures of any faith, you kind of start in the front and work your way through. But when you get to Paul, it's, uh, I'm going to come back to the Gospels, uh, but even Paul, there's a bit of a minefield there that you've got to be very, very, careful about, because there are actually four Pauls in the New Testament. <laughs> let me explain what I mean. Mm. Uh, in my book, the uh, Paul and Jesus that you've we've mentioned, and written, uh, I, that I think it. we've even talked about in, in the past, mm. in the back, there's an appendix. Yep. You don't hear this much, but I call it the quest for the historical Paul. Everyone talks about the quest for the historical Jesus. We all know Schweitzer's famous work yeah. published in English in 1906. But I started with this sentence. What can we reliably know about Paul and how can we know it? As is the case with Jesus, this is not an easy question. Mm-hmm. So for naive readers of the Bible, you say, well, if you want to know about Jesus, you read Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. But for about 150, 200 years, uh, scholars, very bright scholars, not just skeptics, but good historians, solid historians, have delved into the life of Jesus. Mm-hmm. As well as the life of Paul? Mm-hmm. And so there's some parameters that uh, we need to set. Mm-hmm. So what do, I, what do I mean by four Pauls? Scholars have almost universal agreement and I think we should trust this I testified to it myself having worked on Paul for 40 years uh, I studied at the University of Chicago I wrote my dissertation on Paul which by the way this is published as a more accessible version of the dissertation wow. it's available on Amazon I worked on his mystical experience and his message. Mm-hmm. But one of the things uh, that we learn is that only seven of the 13 letters come to us and what we feel is a uninterpolated or unrewritten form. That is, if we could pull these seven letters out, and they're letters, this actual correspondence, some more formal, some more occasional. Mm -hmm. And here are the seven, and they're in basically kind of a chronological order. First Thessalonians, not second, but first. Galatians, first and second Corinthians. And that's actually more than one letter. We call it two, but it's probably as many as fragments making up six different letters. Let's call it the Corinthian correspondence. Romans, which is more of a formal treatise. The New Testament canon puts that first as if to say, here's the real poll. Mm-hmm. Well, I do think it's an authentic letter of poll. Philippians and Philemon. Philemon's just a little private letter about a runaway slave, but interesting reading. So those are those are the core seven.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Then you have, let's call it tiers. So foundational tears start with the seven. Now I tell my students, many of whom come from conservative or even fundamentalist backgrounds. You know, if you don't like the word authentic in inauthentic, go with early, middle and late maybe. Uh, and then you can be comfortable with what I'm saying. So authentic or early and you put that in your title very wisely. So that way, you know, the dating is pretty clear. So mm-hmm. early Paul, and then The second tier is disputed Paul or deuteropole, secondary Paul. I like the word secondary, or if you prefer later Paul. So early Paul, later Paul. Now these letters are colossally important for Pauline theology. You could almost not do the standard theology without these letters. And when people argue and discuss back and forth theology, Especially if you have somebody who's more fundamentalist or conservative, somebody more liberal or secular, you go to these letters, Second Thessalonians, not as much, but Ephesians and Colossians, I'm telling you, those are the crown jewels of Pauline theology.
1: That's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now.
0: Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR. Historians are of the view, the decided view that Ephesians and Colossians have been overwritten or rewritten. It doesn't mean that they don't contain any Paul, Mm -hmm. but they present a sort of finalized picture of how people are interpreting Paul. So as a historian, I prefer to go to the source. It's just like Jesus. If I wanna study the historical Jesus, I'm not gonna go to the Gospel of John to start, which is the later, most theological, most Christologically developed letter. I would wanna go probably to the sayings of Jesus that some scholars call Q and and kind of go along like that. It makes sense. It would make sense if we were doing the life of Abraham Lincoln or anybody. I would wanna go to his letters first and the things that are indisputable and then begin building with other interpretations and so forth. And then a third tier, and here you wanna say buyer beware because you've got these three letters, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, we call them the pastoral epistles. It sounds very uh, theological or very churchy, but it's the idea that Paul's writing his his two companions, Timothy and Titus, and giving them advice, like do the work of the ministry, and here's how to handle marriages, and widows, and orphans, and a lot of legislative. How do you appoint a bishop? How do you appoint a deacon? Mm. Uh, you know, if you're a fundamentalist or a very conservative believer in the New Testament, you could say, well, Paul got around to that eventually. That's fine. But in this, uh, in this conversation with us, uh, we're not so interested in that. Uh, I don't think that he wrote them. I think it could be some notes that people used. And finally, legendary Paul. Mm. that's actually the Paul that everybody knows. How many times have you heard, you know, Paul on the road to Damascus got knocked off his horse, which it doesn't even say, notice the (laughs) the front of my book, it doesn't even mention a horse, but I guess he was riding along, and uh, he he saw a vision in the sky, and he heard a voice, and so forth. Well, that's the book of Acts. It could also be called tendentious Paul, which is a big word, but it basically means polemical Paul. Whoever whoever wrote Acts, who is the same author who wrote Luke, the gospel of Luke, you'd think he'd be a huge fan of Paul. Mm -hmm. And yet the theology of early Paul is not in the book of Acts. And you're going to we're going to talk about Luke later because you and I have had a chat about this. Mm -hmm. I want to save that. But the author of Acts is the same as the author of Luke. I'm not saying he doesn't like Paul. Lots of Christians like Paul, but they like the Paul of their theological construction. But was that the real Paul? So you could call it the real Paul, the lost Paul, the forgotten Paul, the authentic Paul, the early Paul. Is that enough? Yeah.
1: And then I came
0: up. You've got to have a method when you do these things. A lot of times, people think scholars pick and choose. Oh, you like this verse, and then you go to this, and you say, "Well, that's probably not accurate." And it gives the non-specialist the impression that it's just spin the wheel with your own preferences. It's not that at all. Here's my method. It's very tight. Never, number, there are four, three points. Number one, never accept anything in Acts over Paul's own account in his seven early letters. So if the book of Acts says something that Paul contradicts, I'll give you a quick example Uh, Clearly, in Galatians 2, Paul's letter, you have Paul's account of going up to Jerusalem and meeting James, Peter, and the other apostles. That's his first time account. In the book of Acts, you have the kind of public announcement. You know, when world leaders meet and have a conference, finally they come out to the press. They've had a two-hour meeting the nuts and the bolts, maybe they even yelled at each other or got heated or whatever, right? But when they come out for the press conference, they're gonna present the public face. And so Acts 15 tells you about this wonderful harmonious conference. It was in the year 49 uh, CE or AD, where Peter and Paul came up and James who's in charge of the movement, the brother of Jesus, which people forget, You know, Luke doesn't even identify who he is. He never calls him the brother of Jesus. He can't leave him out because he's head of the whole movement. And, in fact, in the book of Acts, he has to say and does say that James stands up before the whole assembly after everybody's had a chance to speak. I picture him hitting a gavel like this. My decision is, what do you mean your decision is? This is very rabbinic. He's head of the Nazarene rabbinic community, you could say, yeah, if you just
1: understand the So, just a pause, Sorry, just nice. a pause here, um, James, mm-hmm. if I may. Uh, James, sure. your namesake. Um, and Paul, <laughs> my namesake, uh, uh, is that uh, many people, most Christians probably in the world, uh, assume that Peter was the head of this uh, movement. This church. Absolutely. Um, Good but point. that's actually not what Luke has the early church uh, composed of. It's James who it, it's, say, has the gravel and makes the decision, not Peter. So here we have an interesting contradiction between the, yes. the origins in some Christian versions of early history and what the, uh, the New Testament itself says. Particularly, and
0: I'm glad you pointed that out. It's important. For, you know, we get all kinds of viewers. Some know that, some don't. And some might be saying, James, who? <laughs> now, Luke, I, I don't want to do Luke today, but I've got to say this because of the Book of Acts. You know, he wrote both. Whoever Luke was, the author of what we yeah. call Luke X, he does a human but anyway, he also doesn't name the brothers of Jesus when he go. you know, when he's copying Mark and Mark says, oh, Jesus and his four brothers, James, Joseph, Simon and Jude. He just leaves them out. He He's oh, the brothers, you know, like, who are they? And then in Acts one, he says, oh, Mary's there and the brothers. What do you mean she's there? He's actually the brother. James is in charge of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So uh, I often say you go to the Vatican And you walk up those steps. Have you been to the Vatican, Paul? Have you ever traveled to the Vatican?
1: Yeah, St. Peter's.
0: And what do you see on the right is that colossal statue of Paul. And on the left, Peter, the steps going up. Jesus and the apostles are up uh, on Mm -hmm. on the roof, so to speak, you know, in statue form. And you go, where's James? And you know what? The answer would be, if you ask anybody there, James who? Yeah. He's yeah. literally been out of history. Out of history. Yeah. So never accept an X over Paul's own account. So there's a good example, and there are many examples. Doesn't mean X, we throw it out, but point one, if Paul gives an account of, a conf- of that conference and X gives an account, don't go by the press release. You understand what I mean? Don't go by the press release. You should read it. But realize that behind the scenes, it was maybe not quite harmonious. And in fact, Paul in Galatians uses language like this. (laughs) He said, I went up to Jerusalem. And yes, I met with the so-called pillars of the church. What Mm -hmm. they are means nothing to me. Wow. My goodness. This is authentic
1: Paul. And and, and, As you say, you go to St. Peter's in, in Rome. This is the heart of the Vatican. Uh, where the Pope is, and on the as you see, two huge statues before you go into St Peter's uh, Church. On the left, you know, you have the uh, St Peter and you say uh, St Paul, presenting a united front, a united Catholic front. Absolutely. Uh, the is, as you say, two 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 problems. James is missing. Where's the brother, the head of the church at you know the beginning? And secondly, it presents this harmonious account. We see in Luke, Luke acts um, where the church is united in agreement. Is he kind right. of Eusebian history, exactly. also, uh, reflecting later Catholic orthodoxy in some ways? Um, but you don't see this internal schism, this, this uh, antagonism from Paul towards J. These so cold. I mean, you know, he's questioning their integrity as apostles.
0: Yes, absolutely. Paul
1: is, in the New Testament itself, he's questioning their integrity and their status as apostles of God. But how much of that is part of the, the intellectual theological furniture of the av- average Christian when they... Of
0: course, and the Pope is, you know, uh, the Pope is the vicar of Christ, and he's the successor of Peter. No, he doesn't even claim to be the successor of James. And guess what? He's not the successor of James. So, number one, let's go first to Paul's account. It would be like reading the original letters that someone actually wrote. Okay. Secondly, cautiously consider Acts if it agrees with Paul's letters and one can detect no obvious biases. Now this is a judgment, but it doesn't mean that there's nothing of value in the book of Acts. In fact, Paul's journeys and travels that he alludes to in the seven early letters or the seven authentic letters that are genuinely from his hand without interpolation possibly, uh, you can follow kind of his itinerary, like he goes to Ephesus and he goes to Corinth and so forth. So Acts is helpful in that sense. Thirdly, consider the independent information that Acts provides of interest, but not of interpretive historical use. So if Luke tells you something completely independently, it's interesting. For example, the best example might be, and in the book, I then do that for you. It took me uh, months to do this. I went through all the letters, all acts. I compiled a list for you in the book of everything. You know, if we had to do a biography, a biography of Paul, a bio sketch just from his authentic letters, what do you get? And that's on page uh, 230, 231. And then 232. What are some of the things that Acts has independently that Paul never mentions? We could consider them, but we have to uh, think twice. For example, uh, that he was born in Tarsus. Well, we actually have a source, uh, a church father, Jerome, who isn't just making this up. He says that Paul actually was born in the Galilee at a place called Gishela or Gish. he even gives the town, And that his parents and he as a child a baby were exiled in 4 BC when Herod died and revolts break out under Judas son of Hezekiah and uh, Varus the Roman general legate of Syria sends down three legions and crucifies 2,000 people and puts down the revolt and they exile thousands of people uh, from the countryside well the Book of Acts doesn't know that, and has that makes up speeches just like you have in Josephus. Like we have no idea what Eleazar said at Masada, but Josephus composes a speech. Well, so does Thucydides, you know, when he writes Greek history. So does Herodotus, mm-hmm. and so does uh, so. You can't go by these speeches. Can I
1: just can I just pause on what you've just said? That's sure. a yeah. good point. That this is standard practice amongst uh, ancient historians. When you say making up speeches, you're talking as if it's somehow really bad. But of course, yeah, I didn't bad. mean to imply that. But by, by no. today's well, no. I, I don't mean to uh, impute anything. But
0: today's it sounds like true. that to people today. Yes. You also right.
1: make up a speech about Abraham Lincoln and then say in a published book, "This he said this." This would be a cause for great scandal. But in the ancient world, you mentioned Thucydides, one of the fathers of history. This was normal practice.
0: And if you didn't do it, your history is dry, you know, you're, you're at a great moment. Uh, let's say we didn't have the Gettysburg Address of Abraham Lincoln, his most famous speech. And we didn't have it, nobody nobody recorded it, he, he wrote it on an envelope, as I recall, and we lost that. Well, back in the ancient world, you would make up a nice speech for what he would have said at that battle, that bloody battle, you'd make up, a, it would probably be much more elaborate than he actually gave, yeah. so yes. So you got to watch that. Also, uh, what about Paul's a Roman citizen? I think he might have been. It does fit the story in Acts, but he never himself claims that. It's odd because sometimes he lists, I am a Pharisee. I was raised here. I did this. I did that. You would think he might say, and I happen to be a Roman citizen. So maybe he was, uh, you know, so I say cautiously, now these are just bio facts. I'm more interested in the history of ideas and, and what we're doing today. But anyway, that's the method. Now, the other thing besides that careful method of the four tiers, read them all, study them all, but start with the seven authentic letters. And that is something else I have in the book called reading the gospels in the light of Paul. And you know, I sometimes, uh, you know, in the classroom, I like to be flamboyant. So I'll say, let's learn to read the New Testament backwards. And they, you know, they go, what do you mean? It's not exactly literally right. Or I'd start in the book of Revelation, right? <laughs> but what about, let's start with First Thessalonians. You go, what? That's way into the middle of the story. It actually is not. First Thessalonians is the earliest, let's call it Christian, Jesus Movement document on the planet. So if I wanna begin building the history of ideas as this movement developed, give me the earliest document I have. And when I teach uh, Paul, I start with that and I spend a long time on it because it's not the great theological treatise that Ephesians and Colossians might be. But see, that's a good thing because you're gonna find that it's an apocalyptic movement. They think the end is very near. Paul thinks he's gonna to live to see the end and so mm-hmm. forth. Same with First Corinthians. And yeah. so that's just a method. So what does that mean? It means that when you open Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, you're not reading the beginning of the story. If anything, you're reading towards the end of the story. Mm-hmm. You're reading how this movement developed in the Mediterranean world, long after Paul is gone and people are now forging accounts of the life of Jesus, of the teachings of Jesus. But if Paul has already lived and died and his letters, as well as his secondary letters are circulating, and even the pastorals by that time, Mm -hmm. then as these gospels are written, you have to consider that they are heavily influenced by Paul, and the best example would be the Last Supper. When you go to the Gospel of Mark, which I think is our earliest gospel, and you're going to put a link in your description to my Mark course. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We'll talk exactly. yeah. Yeah. That, yeah, yeah, We'll talk more that. Yes, absolutely. Because yeah. you can take this course online, and and yep. it'll take you through Mark. And I make this point in the course. You've got to always remember. Whoever Mark is, whoever wrote that early account, he's got Paul in his head. He's got Paul just really heavily in his head. And in many, many ways is reflecting Paul. So think of the Last Supper. Uh, Paul says on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and blessed it and said, this is my body. And he took the cup and he said, this is my blood. Uh, and it's shed for you for the remission of sins and so forth. And you get to Mark, and uh, Mark presents it. It sounds like it's maybe even Passover evening. I personally think it might be the night before Passover, the night he was betrayed, but that's a technical point of, of chronology. But anyway, you read the account of the Last Supper in Mark, and it's just literally you could just take – what Paul says and put it with Mark. Now, some people might say, well, what's the problem with that? It's, a, it's what happened and Paul wrote what happened and Mark is using Paul. But the, think of this, eat my body, drink my blood, even if it's done in a symbolic way, should give you pause if you're talking about the historical Jesus. One of the things that we know was absolutely forbidden is drinking blood as some of the pagan nations did, and some of the rites and some of the Greek magical papyri and so forth. I drank the blood of ISIS and the idea of drinking blood that you get the strength of your God. Uh, it's very, very unlikely. If not, I would just say it didn't happen.
1: It's not just... I, I mean, the problem is it's not just... Unlikely it goes against, it's contrary to the Jewish law, it's contrary yes, to the Torah. Yeah, I mean, and like, what I, James I decided,
0: remember, we talked about James at the council in Acts 15. Yeah. What does he say? Don't eat blood that the Gentiles have to do, they can't eat blood or thing, even something that strangles you know, like you yeah. that would take a bird and wring its neck or something, can't even eat that because it's not properly bled, it's not properly drained. It's not not kosher, it's not halal. Exactly, and it's not just some technical rule about get rid of the blood when you're preparing meat. It has to do with the sacredness of blood. In Genesis 9, if you're going to shed the blood of an animal, it's an awesome thing because you cannot create life, and you cannot give that life back. And if you kill an animal, you can't resurrect it. So it's always done with this reverence for life. And uh, many some religions recognize this, you know, that it's a sacred act, and so the idea of eating that uh, and mixing it with other food, it's like no, that's that blood is a life, and uh, killing the animal is death. And so, it's
1: very un-Jewish. It's a very un-Jewish uh, uh, taboo thing to do. But also, I'm just just curious, to get your view on something. In w- w- we're looking at what Paul says in one Corinthians chapter. Uh, Eleven verses twenty three onwards, and just just very beginning of the institution of the Lord's Supper. This narrative that you're That's saying right. is copied by or uh, more or less copied by Mark, the earliest gospel. Uh, the, the, in, in Paul's version, he says, "For I receive from the Lord what I also handed on to you." That da de, da de, da da. He talks about the the. Yes. the Lord's supper It's this. It's this statement here. I receive from the Lord.
0: What in my I, book, I argue. What does
1: he mean, I mean, does he mean the problem yes, is this?
0: That we we all know this. Paul never, Paul
1: never met Jesus. We know this. The historical Jesus had long left the scene before Paul began his ministry okay. to the Gentiles. So he doesn't mean he met Jesus in downtown Galilee one afternoon and, get, and got the story from him. What does Paul mean? He said, "I received from the lot." Was it a mystical vision, perhaps?
0: Absolutely. And I argue this in the book. It's not a position that many scholars take because they like the idea of it's a verb para lambano, to pass something down by tradition. And they like to say that, well, that's what he got from James or Peter because he's a late comer to the movement. And uh, but he doesn't say I received it from the apostles before me. In fact, he says in Galatians, the gospel I preach, I did not receive it from men or by men, but by a revelation of Jesus Christ. That's Galatians, very important. So there he's saying, everybody thinks, well, he went to Jerusalem and he needed to catch up a little bit. You know, uh, what did Jesus used to say about this? And what? (laughs) Well, for Paul, why would you ask them when you can talk to Jesus? There's an old evangelical song. Let's have a little talk with Jesus, right? Paul believes that. Paul, I wrote my dissertation on Paul's ascent to paradise. What does he say? It's conversations. Well, he claims he went all the way into the highest heaven and saw these amazing things. But then he has this thorn in the flesh, which is some sort of a physical ailment or maybe even attack of an evil spirit or something like that. He calls it an angel of Satan. And he, he talks, com- he says, I asked the Lord three times and he answered me, he said, no, no, Paul, this is good for you, it teaches you humility. This yeah. is like I would be talking to you on the phone and say, you know, Paul, uh, you know, you're Paul, I'm James here, uh, uh, talking. Well, I wrote and,
1: James you know, Paul. he and has story. that
0: relationship and it needs to be realized now the reason people are so wary of this just like they are with his resurrection thing that i want to get to <laughs> yeah. they're so wary of it because he said oh but then it could just be him being you know psychotic or crazy or hallucinating well it could be because lots of people say oh, that they hear from god and hear from jesus Mary. all the time Thousands of people hear from Jesus every day, and many of them will say, "No, I, it is Jesus. I hear it." Okay, and you don't want to put Paul in that kind of questionable mental state. Just on a, on a you know, Paul point. speak for himself. He said he yeah. talks to Jesus. He said he received it from Jesus. So mm. there you go. Mm.
1: No, I just want to say the, the idea of of an angel or God speaking to people it, it is in itself. Possible, but the problem is when people say they received communication from Jesus. Some of the great Christian reformers in history, like Calvin, Luther, Zwingli, etc., or claim that intimacy with Jesus in this way. The problem is that they disagreed often on fundamental matters of do- Christian doctrine, about infant baptism, for example, the, 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 whether or not it was doable, or the nature of the Eucharist. Obviously, Luther's understanding of consecration is different from Calvin, which is different from the Catholic understanding, which is different from Zwingli's understanding. Sure. I, I mean, this is just some of many examples. So, if they were so directed and communicated by god or by jesus you'd expect a uniformity of practice and doctrine uh, to emanate from these central christian practices and beliefs which we just don't see uh, we yeah. in fact, we see much disagreement and conflict and, and even wars so the religious wars 30 years war in europe was all over uh, religious matters so um the, the practical outworking of this claim Suggests in fact they're not really all hearing jesus unless jesus is speaking with conflicting voices which of course exactly Arguably not where
0: the rubber really meets the road for christians is at the and you and i've done Some other shows on this where we've touched on it, but let's bring it in here. It really fits if I go to remember I say read the Read the gospel read the new testament backwards. So don't start with the gospel start with paul So if you start with Paul, think of the empty tomb and the resurrection accounts that you find, particularly in Luke and John, where he's eating fish, you're touching his wounds. Luke even says he's flesh and bones, not a ghost or a spirit, but that's a later account. And the only first person account of the resurrection of Jesus is from Paul, his own mouth. He writes in his authentic letters, 1 Corinthians 9, 1 Corinthians 15, and Galatians 1. I've seen the Lord. The Lord revealed himself to me, meaning Jesus, the Lord or,
1: Jesus. Or, or in me, another possible translation of the Greek there, to me or That's in right. That's me. That's right. It's
0: an and interior. if you ask him then, oh, you've seen the resurrected Jesus. Well, yep. what, what sort of a body was it? He cannot, he says, I <laughs> look, it's glorious, it's powerful, it's beyond this world, it's amazing. Uh, Maybe like a bright light, he doesn't use that, but glory is like light, you know? And that's not, and yet that's his experience. And so when people go to Easter, when they talk about the resurrection of Jesus, they always wanna go to the later account. Now, if, you know, the later account, you're gonna fit it in somehow, that's fine. And people, of course, do that all the time. But our earliest witness says, I can't tell you what kind of a body he was raised in. And you someday who are resurrected will also be given a body like his glorious body. And he's talking about resurrection from the dead, not later glorification in heaven or something like that. He says the dead will be raised incorruptible in this glorious state. So there are many things like that. And all of this is just to say, let's go first to Paul, the early source and the early letters, and see what we can come up with. So most of what we said so far is, I guess you could call it the method that we want to use in approaching early Paul. Mm -hmm. So the next question would be, what do we find in early Paul that might surprise us uh, because it would be the earliest form that we have of the Jesus movement. Now, first of all, keep in mind, as we have both agreed, I think, it's based on Paul's visionary experience. Mm -hmm. He says that his message, what he calls my gospel, just call it the gospel (laughs) because the gospel I preach, my gospel was given to him by this these revelation experiences. And there are more than one. He says, there's an abundance of these revelations that I've gotten. Now, that would rightly give pause to those like James who grew up with Jesus, Peter, who was chosen and accompanied him during his ministry and his preaching and teaching and healing and so forth, because they had firsthand heard from Jesus the things that he taught. And now Paul is getting kind of this later word, you might say, that he considers to be supersessionist and superseding or by, you know, passing over the early. So he says things like in his early letters, though we once knew Christ after the flesh, you know, he was a human being in the world. We no longer know him that way, as if to say, and he is saying in that context, listen to me because I'm telling you what Jesus is saying, this heavenly glorified Christ. So keep in mind when we're studying uh, Jesus, that if we want to get the earliest record of Jesus, it is actually uh, Paul telling us what he heard from Jesus. And whether or not that's a historical Jesus, you have to make judgments about. And in many cases, he seems to differ. We just mentioned the eating blood, Uh, drinking blood and eating flesh and so forth, even Mm -hmm. if he thinks it's a kind of symbolic representation. I don't think uh, there's no way you can picture, as you said, Jesus as a Jewish person uh, having a ceremony like this. By the way, you know this, I know, Paul, but we have this text that has surfaced in the late 19th century called the Didache, Oh. which is the teaching of the Twelve Apostles, and it has a chapter on the Eucharist. Yes. Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, the, the yes. Mass, right? And surprise of surprises, it mm. hasn't been influenced by Pauline theology. Yeah. And so guess what? When it describes the Eucharist, there's no body and blood of Christ. There's no drink and, and it's of really a, a Christian document. So it, it could be easily read by, by a Jew. Yeah. It's coming to us from a... A segment of Christianity, uh, as it developed, and there were many streams, that was not uh, not a, maybe not even familiar with this idea. You know, we read it today as if everybody was reading the same uh, accounts of Paul just from day one. Well, you know, these letters circulate, and maybe some people believed them, and some didn't. Paul had his enemies and opponents. Uh, I'm of the opinion, as I put forth in this book, that Paul actually broke in the end with the Jerusalem church, which I know to most people is just horrifying because everybody has to be
1: united. Because it's interesting that you mentioned James being the head of the church. We we know from multiple independent sources that Jesus' brother, James, was a Torah observant Jew. We know this from Josephus, for example, the Jewish historian. We know this from uh, other sources. We'll go through, through the list. But the point is this, that, if James, the head of the church, was a Torah observant Jew, he would not be drinking blood and eating flesh. That this whole practice would have been seen as an abomination. It wouldn't have sat with him uh, as something the pious Jew would have done. So again, you talk about you know the, the the Paul spitting off from the Jerusalem church. Issues like this, which were central to Paul, would would I think would have sat very un- uneasily with the Jewish Christians centered in Jerusalem who would not have perhaps said, well, what do you mean drinking the blood of Jesus? You know, he's James's brother. You know, we're Jews. We, we, we follow the law. The law says we don't do this. Even metaphorically, it's disgusting. It's, it's, it's disgusting. We don't do that sort of thing. And even James in, in Acts, as you say, says don't eat blood. So clearly, if you join the dots, uh, you can see that there is room, that there is grounds for a schism. In the uh, in the early Jesus movement we have different movements splitting apart uh, for various reasons
0: and one has to also wonder since there's one God and one Lord Jesus Christ for Paul mm. and if you mean by Lord just master that's fine but if you bow the knee as Paul says at the name of Jesus as an intermediator to the one God of Israel, yod heh vav the sacred name of God, the one God, uh, then what actually are you doing? Uh, because you're putting between God and the individual all the way through the Hebrew Bible, uh, God is accessible to every human being. Uh, God is near to those who call upon him. Hmm. Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. That sounds like Paul text a quote from uh, the Hebrew Bible. You call upon the creator and you can be saved from trouble, even saved from your sins. You can be forgiven. As a father pities his son, so does the Lord, the, the one God, pity those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, he removes our sins. So Paul has this other doctrine that in order to approach God, this is very clear in the book of Romans. uh, You know, you go through Romans 1. Let's just do this really quickly because this is his treatise on his whole gospel. Romans 1 is the wickedness of those who've rejected God. Mm -hmm. At that point, all the Jews would be, the faithful Jews would be nodding their head. Yes, the world is departed. Look at all these ways and names, all the sins, this long list of perversions and sins of humankind. And he ends by saying the wrath of God is justly on this, these people. Chapter 2, he says, but if you as a Jew know these things but don't do them, And someone who's a Gentile, a non-Jew, keeps the Torah of the heart. You know, they instinctively don't lie, don't cheat. They know there's a greater power. They try to be a good and honest person. And they're not carrying around a Bible. You know, the Bible comes later. Uh, He says, uh, then who would God justify, really? And he uses the term justify, that the hearers... Hmm. will not be justified. Those who just recite the Torah, but don't do it. But what if somebody doesn't even have the written Torah, but they keep the principles of the Torah? He calls it the Torah written in the heart of every human being. Uh, He said, wouldn't they be ahead of the Jews and kind of like a Jew, meaning a person of God? Now, so far, the rabbis would be nodding their heads, the good rabbis like Hillel and so forth. They'd be, yes, of course. You know, you got to follow it. You can't just recite it. And then he goes to chapter three, and you would think, okay, what's next, Paul? And he says, well, everybody's a sinner, though, right? Everybody's a sinner. None is righteous, no, not one. Absolutely taught throughout the scriptures, the Hebrew Bible, again, which is what he had. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God is what he, the way he says it. And then he says, and then he adds, but now... The sacrifice of Jesus Christ and His blood is an atonement for your sins. God gave His only Son. He doesn't quote that, John 3:16, but it's that idea. And you've got to go through Christ now and His blood to be saved. And then in these authentic letters, he does put that in repeatedly, that it's through the blood of Jesus. And of course, this ritual of drinking the blood and Mm -hmm. uh, eating the flesh and so forth. So now we've got something that is very, very non-Jewish, very non, I like to say non-Hebraic. It's not Abrahamic. Uh, We know, I love Psalm 51. Uh, I don't love that David committed adultery and murder, of course, but David writes this penitent Psalm any believer in a creator God could read that psalm yeah. if they've fallen short and feel that they've failed in their lives, and all of us have. Mm-hmm. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Blot out all my transgressions. Forgive me of my sins, and so forth. And he says, "You would, you don't need sacrifice." Amos says, "What should I offer for the sin of my soul? My firstborn child." So you come up with this religion which says, yeah, that's actually what you do, but God's gonna offer his firstborn child and then you can be saved. Now, Paul is the one who introduces this. In his letters, it's in his authentic letters. Of course, it is picked up throughout Christianity, but if you start with the gospels, it's already there. Hmm. We talked a little bit before our recording about uh, Mark
1: yes yeah, so i and want to ask you about that if i may because what yeah just let's saying.
0: jump in there because that's yeah. where you you know you get it in the gospels they're
1: getting in, it from in mark chapter 10 you get this this amazing statement put on the lips of jesus for the son of man well, i'll assume for the sake of argument this is jesus speaking in the third person came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many mark 10 45 So this idea of it is implicit there. It's not quite as explicit as you might want of an atoning sacrifice in some way, a ransom at the very least. Now, the problem is this. You you, you say that Paul has influenced Mark. You say uh, the the institution of the Last Supper, Mm. 1 Corinthians, is found almost word for word in Mark's gospel, which it is the same kind of Greek. You can look at it, the very similar construction of the language. But and this is the problem. This is my question for you. If you look at Luke's gospel, now Luke is apparently the companion of Paul. In the book of Acts, you suddenly halfway through, you get these wee passages. So Luke suddenly appears in the narrative with Paul going around doing, you know, doing what they do in Acts. So Paul and Luke know each other. Luke writes his gospel, the gospel of Luke. And as is well known, Luke uses Mark as Matthew uses Mark as well. And, and they both use a source called cube, but that's a different subject. Mm-hmm. Luke uses Mark in the writing of his own gospel. He, he edits it. He adds in nativity story, uh, the birth of Jesus. He adds in bits at the end with the resurrection appearances. He adds in a whole bunch of parables and teachings and whatnot. But he also deletes things, omits things. And one of the crucial verses in Mark that he omits, Luke omits from Mark Is this very verse in Mark 10, 45 for the Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, many scholars, we happen to know this, you know, many scholars say, and I think quite rightly that Luke doesn't have an understanding of Jesus as a a messianic figure who came to die as an atonement for sin, a blood sacrifice, a substitutory atonement that they argue is not there in Luke, which is fine by me. But if Luke was a companion of Paul and Mark is reflecting Paul's theology, how come Luke is deleting this passage in Mark? Okay. It doesn't make any sense to me. There should be a consistent um, exposition of soteriology in all these sources. But there isn't. Luke clearly rejects Mark's understanding of Jesus as an atoning sacrifice. How could he do that if he was a companion of right. Paul? Yeah. He does teach.
0: Well, he it's, it's, it's a complex, but... I think fairly straightforward answer. Right. He love the author of Luke X loves Paul as his legendary hero, but he's not giving you the Paul we know in the authentic letters. And so he uh, and by the way, that verse, uh, before I expound a bit on that point, 10:45 yeah. in, in this course I do on Mark, I build up to that verse just like an orchestra would finally hit a crescendo. It literally, you need to have the lights flashing. You need to have sound going off. It's telling you the secret of the entire gospel of Mark. And uh, so it's not just, oh, well, he, there's a verse he took out. No, it's, it's kind of the climax. It's after three times Jesus has talked about suffering and being rejected and so forth. Yes, yes. And then he gives the reason. Now for Paul, suffering is, even in his case, he says, "I fill up and pour my own blood out on the sacri- on the altar of for your faith uh, and so forth. It's very complicated in the Greek. He has this idea of even this is Paul himself in his letters, that not only Jesus did this, but that uh, he himself, is a kind of a, a Christ figure for the Gentiles, like Jesus. He says went to the circumcision. I'm now going to the uncircumcision, and I'm suffering. I bear in my body the wounds of Christ. He says, though it's actually stigmata, the actual wounds of Christ. He's got so he he's completely into this. Luke is not. Luke has Paul persecuted. He has him beaten and whipped and so forth. But see, in Luke's idea repentance and remission of sins are preached to all nations by the message of Jesus going forth. But this is a very, uh, still pretty much a Hebraic view of things that you go out and you preach. He certainly does think Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. He believes he's been raised from the dead, but he doesn't have this uh, intercessory idea the way Paul does. I'll give you the best example I know of. Luke tells about two men going up to the temple to pray. This is only in Luke. Yes. And he says, one of them was a hypocrite. He calls him a pharist, a tax collector, as I recall. And he yes. says, I thank God I was not like other men. I'm so righteous. I'm so good. That would be the Romans 2 guy, right? I've yes. got the Torah. I've got the law. I'm wearing my Jewish outfits, I'm so good, God loves me. And then there's a, a sinner, a picture almost like a Gentile. I don't know that he's a Gentile, but he's, he won't even lift his head to heaven. And he just beats his breast and he says, I have nothing to say, but God be merciful to me, a sinner. Yeah. And then Jesus asks the question, notice the language, yeah. which one of these two went up justified before God? exactly and and then he, you know that the crowd is going well i guess the one that repented and then he tells the story of the prodigal son in connection with that which many christians know it's the same point yeah that now notice this guy went up justified justified means forgiven declared not guilty prayer is the sacrifice it it's, 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 it's says those he actually
1: gives the reason why he was justified, doesn't he, in that passage in Luke? He says those who humble themselves will be exalted; those who exalt right. themselves will be humbled. So it was his his prayer, but it was his humility before God that led him to being justified before God. As you say, the point, of course, this is the whole point you mentioning this extraordinary parable or story, is that it's not by putting the the tax collector wasn't justified by putting his faith in Jesus' death on the cross. Uh, there was no crucifixion, atonement story at all. Right. It was by his humility before God. He, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. That's the point of the story. And, right. uh, and this is a story we often ask Christians about this very story. They don't get it. And I say to them, what, what, I, what I do, how I play it is, I just read to exactly what you just said. Then I say to them, how was this man justified before God? Because Jesus tells them how he was justified. That's right. That's right. Tells, mm-hmm. It's not a secret. This is not a trick question. And 99% of the time, they don't know. Because they, 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 they want to say the man is justified by putting his faith in Jesus. As that's his Lord. right. And
0: it's not even a story it's, about Jesus. That's what
1: yeah. Paul says. This that's is right. how Paul says in Romans. We are justified by faith in in Christ's death and resurrection. That is yeah, it's correct.
0: Romans 3 that begins a new religion. I would say the new religion of Christianity was born in Romans 3. Not that it the idea originated there, but he's writing his treatise. And remember, that's what inspired Martin Luther yes, and many of the Christian reformers to say, that's this it. is it. This is the core. And then you get statements like that every knee will bow in every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. All of a sudden, Paul is the one who is introducing this notion that there's a partner, there's an intermediary that has to come in order for that forgiveness to be dispensed. It gets expanded much later in Christianity. Finally, even Mary, the mother of God, as she's called, Mm -hmm. Uh, In even the rosary prayer, Uh, she can spread some of that out as well and even some of the saints. And so this whole thing begins. Now, Paul would not have approved of that, I'm sure, and he wouldn't endorse Catholic Christianity and all the things that developed. Of course not. And he also has an understanding of humility and suffering to his credit. He does. And he talks about, I mean, he's a very sacrificial person, mm. uh, but he does think <laughs> that in order to come to God because of your sins, you must go through the blood of Christ. And he does say in Romans 9 and 10 and 11, this is same book. And this is authentic. This is early Paul, and it doesn't suit well ecumenically with people today, theologians. Yeah. He says, that the Jews who do not believe in Jesus—they're the covenant people—are broken off and are branches dying on the ground, not connected to God anymore. But if they receive Christ, they can be grafted in again, just like the Gentiles are being—you know—grafted into the the people of God. Let's call it. If you say the Jew, you know. Israel or something, it's sometimes confusing, but the people of God. The people of God are like a a branch or a tree, and some people are broken off for their unbelief. You have to say, unbelief in what? Mm. And he he commends the Jewish people, his fellow Jews, who don't believe in Christ. He says they're zealous. Mm. They have the covenants. They have the Torah. He names all the things that he could admire, but he says they've rejected their Messiah. So this sets the tone for the supersessionism that becomes Christianity. Sort of my way or the highway idea, as we say today, there's this is it. There's no other name, you know, by which you may be saved and so forth. And Luke has that as well to some degree, but he doesn't have this. He's not so much into the Mark 1045 idea. Now, Mark is. Mark very, very much is presenting this as at the center. And therefore that last supper in Mark being so Pauline in its language is basically an affirmation of uh, Paul and then Luke and Matthew include it. And they have their own peculiarities, but they are still going along with the central idea. And then finally, John. Eat my blood. Eat, I'm sorry. Eat my flesh and drink my blood. Yeah. Uh, in John six and so forth. Uh,
1: fact, the, the Greek is quite crude. It's, it's 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 chew on. It's it's a very kind of crude physical. Uh, just like, uh, a bread, right? like a piece of bread. Like a piece of bread. All of a sudden,
0: is- you have this development. No, you know, we say, oh, Paul, blame it on Paul. Paul's the founder and so forth. Well what you've got, you've got many streams, you know, you get Gnosticism, you get all kinds of variations by the second, third, and fourth century. Mm-hmm. But if you go back to around the year, I like to pick the year 50. We know a lot about the year 50. It's right after Caligula tried to put his uh, image in the temple. Apocalyptic fervor is just boiling everywhere. And we, we've lost touch with what, uh, was going on in Jerusalem, except through Acts and through Paul's letters. But if you think about what's going on there clearly, as we've said, two very distinct streams. One is coming from the historical Jesus, his brother James, from the apostles that were with Jesus firsthand. And we don't have things from them. I, we're not gonna do first Peter today, but just because the name Peter is on Peter, don't assume it's written by Peter. It it's actually mentions the companion of Paul, Silvanus, who's Silas, Paul's companion in the book of Acts. And Peter is full of Paulian ideas. So whoever wrote it is presenting a version of Paul in Peter garb, you might say, in the cloak of Peter, his name. The only thing that survives in the New Testament that would help us to recover. There are two things. If you wanted to say, well, before Paul came along and began to push this other stream, what do we have? We have the letter of James, first of all, huge. The letter of James. Read the letter of James. If you take out two times where he mentions Jesus Christ, and if if you think Jesus is the Messiah, you don't even need to take those out. A Muslim could read... I know you're Muslim, a Muslim could read the letter of James and absolutely say this is one of the greatest ethical treatises I've ever read in my life. You know, he talks about don't hold the faith of our Lord and be a hypocrite. If a poor man comes into your assembly, your synagogue, don't put him in the back and a rich man's in the front. This is taught throughout Islam and Judaism to, you know, don't be a respecter of persons. It's taught through the Hebrew Bible that God is no respecter of persons, that God looks at the poor and the widows and the outcasts. So we have that source and there's not one Christian element in the book of James. How could there be a letter in the New Testament written by the head of the movement and there's not one Christian element except a reference to Jesus as the Messiah?
1: And this is why people like Martin Luther, who set set off the Great Reformation in Europe, of course, really didn't like that epistle. He called it Epistle of James and called it an epistle of straw, by by which he meant, I think, is worthless because it didn't have these great Pauline themes of salvation and the death of the Messiah and all that. It doesn't have any. My
0: understanding is in the original, and and somebody should uh, check this because maybe I'm faulty memory here, but he had it printed at the end of the New Testament in a different typeface, at least in some of the versions of the Luther Bible. We can check that, but I'm pretty sure. Meaning, okay, now what is, what is being lost here? Now, what's the other source? It's what sc- scholars get all agitated. It was there a Q source, is there not a Q? Should you call it Q or what? You know, I just skirt through that. I say, there's a collection of the sayings of Jesus that Matthew and Luke have in common that's not in Mark. Yeah. Okay, I just said it's not Paul, right? If it's not in Mark, then it's not Paul because Mark is so heavily influenced by Paul. Mm-hmm. So I don't care if you call it QXYZ, it's a collection of the sayings of Jesus that is not in Mark. Guess what? If you read that also, you get this same atmosphere, this same sense. It is very apocalyptic, but in terms of what kind of a faith is it? It's the Sermon on the Mount. How do I pray? Do I go out on the street and parade myself and pray loudly to be seen of men or do I go in my closet and so forth? How do I give alms? You know, uh, there's a statement in the Didache and I would throw the Didache in as a a third source that preserves this precious strand of the actual Jesus movement. I mean, Paul, I've worked for 40 years on Jesus. So yeah, I care about the guy mm-hmm. and I really care about him being misrepresented by these later movements, because mm-hmm. I think if he came back, he would say, what is, you know, what is all this about? Mm-hmm. You know, you've made me a God an in a When I said there's one God and turned to him and so forth. And, uh, you know, it's just, uh, it's it's just amazing. But anyway, uh, in Q or the sayings of Jesus that you get, it's just wonderful ethical teachings. Pretty radical, but in times of stress and persecution, often people turn to those things because they're actually being pursued by people. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you you know? What do you do when people despise and oppress you and oppose you? Bless them. Do not curse them, and so forth. And and these are the things that people know in the Sermon on the Mount. And, you know, I think in their hearts, Paul, you're, you, you know, you, you live in the United Kingdom. And I think if we think of our good people going to the Church of England and the liturgy is there and it's very Pauline and very Catholic and it's all developed, but then they'll read the sermon on the Mount. And I think the average person is in the pew. If you interviewed them and you're in London on the street interview, what's this all about? They they would say actually, Oh, it's not about, you know, all Um, of this theology. They'd say it's about treating your neighbor as you love yourself. It's about being honest. It's about, It's this, if you just say the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, 7, David, this is what it's really about. How do you help the poor? How do you help widows? But, you help James, if I
1: can just push back, although I think that's true, it's not, I don't think it quite works because if you actually read, well, obviously you have, I'm not saying you should read, if one actually reads Mark 5, sorry, Matthew chapter 5, the first of the chapters of the Sermon on the Mount, there's cl- clear teaching, uh, to my mind, about the abiding endurance of Torah obedience and the assumption that one would continue to obey the Jewish law. Now, and, and in Matthew 5, 17, for example, do not think I've come to abolish the law. He's preaching a, 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 a renewed interior. Um, oh, as they, as they
0: would just skip over that. <laughs> but,
1: yeah. but the, the, point, yeah. the point is, if they were to take the Sermon on the Mount seriously, as it actually is, mm-hmm. all these Christians would go down the road to the local Orthodox synagogue, and yeah. they knock on the door saying, um we'd like to be admitted into your religion please but we believe Jesus is the messiah but we I, wonder, guess, I guess the,
0: the sense I'm getting and this might not be true in England but um in in the mainstream churches we call it the mainline churches and actually that had to do with railroad lines originally you know the main churches you'd have a methodist and a and a you know a catholic and and Lutheran and episcopalian and so forth the main churches in most cities in America i think a lot of the people they don't necessarily believe all the christian theology that's been my experience in speaking at these churches yes. like they they don't believe in the virgin birth in the way that you know that, that christianity teaches it they don't even know for sure if they believe in the resurrection the way but they kind of see it, it's a good thing to go because it teaches you, you know, these ethics and so forth. I mean, it's almost like, because it teaches you the book of James, you know, and of course there are people totally under the theology, but it tends to be in America, at least, more the evangelical churches that are into the theology of Paul. And, you know, on my campus, If I walk around and we have these evangelical campus crusade for Christ and, you know, Rossio, Cristo and all these groups, and they stop people on, on the sidewalk and stop you and say, if you were to die tonight, do you absolutely know that you would go to heaven? They don't ask you, what are you doing for the poor, the widows, the orphans? What are you doing to speak against injustice? What are you doing, you know, to promote a just economic system, they ask you, would you go to heaven? And then if you go, yeah, I hope, that's what most people say. Well, I hope so. I try to be a good person. But did you know? And then they go to Romans. And they go, but we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So none of us is justified, but through the blood of Christ, you can be saved. Would you like right now to say the sinner's prayer and accept this atonement so that when you die, you'll go to heaven? And literally, there's a little pamphlet they give you and you sign your name in the back and you pray that prayer and it's done. Now, it doesn't mean, I'm not going to caricature them in a silly way, that you're allowed to go out and just do anything. None of them would say that. Of course not. But... They do think that if you don't do that, you have no relationship to God. You're actually cut off from God. God will not hear your prayers until you repent. The thing about
1: this, this, James, is this is a religion about Jesus, so put your faith in Jesus, as opposed to the religion of Jesus, which is better represented by James, by the Sermon on the Mount, or by that passage um, in uh, Luke 18, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, how we're justified before God. This is the... The Jesus religion, the religion of Jesus, but they're not preaching that. They're preaching a religion about Jesus, which you're right. in that's him true. rather than the teaching, which is, you know, uh, to walk humbly with your God, you know, uh, uh, the, the Pharisee, the repentant Pharisee being a role model there of humility. That's not what they're asking for. They're asking for faith in the Pauline Christian religion. And that's, that's different. Right. Jesus's religion, which is essentially a kind of reformed Judaism, if I can put it that that way, without being anachronistic. It was within the the Israelite faith, uh, the Abrahamic faith. It wasn't separate from it. And I think this is something that Christians often find hardest to grasp is that Jesus did not found a new religion. He didn't come to found Christianity. That wasn't his purpose. There's no evidence for that. And that's the view of virtually all historians. He didn't come to found Christianity. And yet that is precisely what ultimately came to pass. And it is that that we are invited to participate in and believe in, with all of it's doctrine, dogma, rituals, ecclesiology, soteriology. But that is not actually what Jesus came to found. He, he came to do something else. And we can see that better, perhaps in, in some passages in Matthew, you mentioned uh, James, even in some passages in Luke. Yeah, there are those places.
0: And if we try to imagine... Uh, what would the movement have been if it stayed on that course? Uh, Let's call it the Jamesian course, the Jesus, John the Baptist, James and Jesus course. Uh, Presumably it would have been a stream of Judaism uh, that would emphasize these things. But I think it very well might have been open to non-Jews in a more expansive way because We do have records in the Gospels that Jesus and John the Baptizer speak to non-Jews regularly, deal with Roman centurions. John the Baptist even addresses Roman soldiers and tells them to be fair and honest and so forth and not oppress people. And so it could be, you know, if we just imagine how the movement would have been, that it might have developed into a kind of a more expansive version of an Abrahamic faith that would include uh, acknowledging Jesus as a great prophet, if not Messiah. It would have had to deal with the failure of the arrival of the end of the world and all of that. And yet, remember, even though I think it's in the air, like Mm -hmm. I I think James does say the judge stands at the door, but then it's in the context of, paying fair wages to your workers, almost like, you know, don't think you're going to get away with this because the judge of the world is at the door, meaning he knows what you're doing. And it could be that that apocalypticism even, I'm not saying it's not in queue, it is to some extent, uh, but it might have not been such a drastic kind of a thing that Paul made it because Paul thinks he's going to live to see it. I mean, he makes it very clear. So to sum up, I think, uh, you know, this is a good segment that we've done. We should go to those early letters of Paul, realize how, f- you know, read the seven letters and, and try to digest them. Then go and read our Gospels carefully. Read Mark, read Matthew, as he rewrites Mark, read Luke, finally read John. Then you could go to the book of Acts. And I think you'll begin to get a better idea of how this how all of these streams developed rather than just the package deal, I'll hold up my Bible again, that you get if you just pick up the New Testament as the finished product. And, of course, it's not the finished product because we don't have popes and cathedrals and bishops and church councils (laughs) and the Trinity and all the other things that begin to develop that I wonder if Paul came back, would he also say, wait a minute, yeah. Uh, and maybe want to pull back as well. But there are two, there
1: are two other books I think are also uh, important reading uh, to continue your theme there. One is this one, uh, your book, Paul uh, and Jesus, uh, How the Apostle Transformed Christianity. And another one of my uh, favorite books, actually, by yourself. Is the Jesus Dynasty or Dynasty? I'm not sure how you pronounce it in American English. We say dynasty. You say dynasty. Say dynasty. dynasty. <laughs> so okay. It says a stunning new evidence about the hidden history of Jesus, the real inspiration. of that's something else. But anyway, th- th- this this majors on James. I don't mean you. I mean James's. That's uh, right. Jesus it covers, does. It? it has. Uh, and
0: it covers all these things we've been talking about in a very yes. thorough way. In. I hope people will subscribe to my YouTube channel. I have a lot of your people that have subscribed. They leave wonderful comments, great uh insights and uh you know some of the people that are following what you're doing as well. Yeah. And I like that we can uh we can have this kind of a meeting of minds taking historical studies. What was Jesus? Who was Paul? How did the New Testament develop? and use scholarship. When I first met you, Paul, several years ago, we began to talk, it was that book that brought you to me. Even before you, I remember you talking about it before we met, actually. You're talking about Jeffrey Butts and uh, his book on James and my book. And uh, you recommend them both and we hadn't even met. And what I like about this is that uh, this is the kind of dialogue Mm. that we need to have worldwide where people become educated on the historical critical understanding of how we got some of these dog uh, doctrines and dogmas and how they developed and so forth. And yep. this one is more maybe a deep dive, but this is real, this is gets to the heart of why Paul, it's the mysticism of Paul, mm. you know, Schweitzer wrote a book Great book called The Mysticism of Paul the Apostle. Yeah. And that's what you're really dealing with, if you want to call it mysticism. This visionary experience, this claim to be above all. And, and this book places it in its Hellenistic context <laughs> where you look at lots of uh, not just Jewish materials or Christian materials, but uh Greco-Roman traditions and so forth. And you find that Paul is pulling very strongly from this culture that he grows up in, in Asia Minor. He's actually creating a kind of a, I don't want to say a fully developed mystery cult, because I think most of us would would say, wait, wait, not, you know, it's not like Serapis or Isis or something like that, or Asclepius. But it does have, it is a salvation cult, that requires the blood of the god it absolutely
1: Uh, is is an important point because there is a family resemblance if i can put it that way between the 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 mystical jesus cult whatever uh that we that we're discussing and similar kinds of devotional cultic practices in the greco-roman world in the first century roman empire there are family resemblances it's not that what paul is saying is similar in some respects to these other pagan practices uh and and thus dissimilar from the abrahamic uh tradition um but i also say for me one of the reasons i found i originally found your book the jesus dynasty interesting you mentioned jeffrey butts and the other books as well is because this this focus on the figure of james and i really do think the evidence suggests that the way to understand gain access to the historical jesus the, the jesus of history as opposed to the jesus of later christian faith Is through james because there is there's so much independent evidence about his who he was he was jesus actual brother it wasn't like an honorary brother like you might say you know to to your friend oh he's my brother no no he was actual blood brother of jesus who knew jesus all his life and then became in the new testament world anyway he suddenly appears out of nowhere becoming the head of the church so absolutely he he was according to our, our, our sources either appointed or elected by the senior apostles themselves, so he is a man who has comp- the complete confidence of people who knew Jesus. So uh, to, to continue his movement, his ministry the, about the kingdom of God, about drawing, you know, calling people back to repentance, and so if you know what he's like, then we can have then the different portraits we have of Jesus. You know, we have portraits uh, in Mark and John. Are so different H- how do we choose between well james can be the key for me anyway into yes, the jesus rather than having to kind of navigate through these very confusing you know the, the jesus of paul the jesus of john the jesus of mark who's who's jesus did you the didache and so on but james i think gives us a sure way into that that's why i think your work for me has been most most beneficial
0: Absolutely. I'm glad that it has served that way. And I want to give credit to Robert Eisenman, whether people agree with all of his theories or whatever. (laughs) Eisenman has been saying before any of us, uh, if you want to know Jesus, start with James. That James is the key. And, uh, you know, sometimes he has been... Uh, interpreted as drifting more towards a kind of mythicist approach. I've heard him say, you know, Jesus, if he existed and so forth. But I think he thinks he existed. He's just so uh, worked up over the idea that people think they can open Paul, Mm. uh, that James would have maybe, like in the Dead Sea Scrolls, considered the liar, Mm. right? And remember, we do have followers of James. They're often referred to as, uh, pejoratively by Epiphanius and people like that is the Ebionites, the poor ones. Yes. Why are they called the poor ones? Because they have poor opinions of Christ, yeah. meaning they don't make him God, they don't make him the Savior, they don't have his yeah. blood. But actually, the poor ones is a great term that Jesus said, "Blessed are you, poor ones." Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, uh, but it could be financially. But really, what you said <laughs> earlier. Humble ones, poor in spirit. Uh, I, I love Isaiah sixty-six. To this one will I look, to him who's of a poor and contrite heart and trembles at my word. That's true religion right there. Isaiah sums it up for the for the whole Bible, and then Paul comes in and uh, he he lays. I don't say he's the creator of Christianity. It's not Christianity yet but he lays the groundwork for this world event to develop, this event in history. At what point, certainly by Constantine it exists, but I think it exists as early as the second century. Justin Martyr, to me, is, is pretty clear. Uh, he, he's not a full fully developed Trinitarian yet, but, but he's on his way. Uh, it develops rather early, and it... You know, do you just wonder what would have happened if, if the influence of James and his successors, Simon, who's either his brother or possibly uh, the son of uh, Clophus, who was Joseph's brother, uh, he he himself uh, takes over. So there is this uh, caliphate of sorts that begins to yeah. develop. Trying kind to of keep you know, the you know, tradition in in line with yeah. with what Jesus taught, and remember that verse in the Gospel of Thomas. I know you know it well. Uh, yeah. The disciples say, "What do we do when you leave us? We're going to be orphans." Who do we go to when you've gone? Go to James the Just. Why don't people yeah. hear that today? Yes. Yeah. Imagine that from the pulpits of the land. Go to the James the Just, for whom heaven and earth came to be. And what that means is. The Jews have this tradition of the Lamit Vavnik. It's just a legend, but it's the idea that God preserves and keeps the world going Mm. because of righteous ones. Yeah. And it was the world came to be for people like James Mm. because it makes the world worthwhile. If the world is not worthwhile, then you have the flood, right? And so, uh, for whom heaven and earth came to be is saying, James. And his like and people who follow that way are the very reason that we have creation. This is the worldview of, uh, and it comes out in a place like the Gospel of Thomas. And, you know, April DeConnick has worked a lot on the Gospel of Thomas. She's a scholar at Rice University. And she has a book arguing that the Gospel of Thomas has been overlaid later with these strata, that sound more Gnosticizing and more in the direction of what you would call Christianity, but that actually there's a core there that is very close to maybe some kind of an original Jamesian uh, 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 strand, Mm -hmm. and it even echoes some of Q and some of the Sermon on the Mount. Isn't that interesting? I'm not
1: familiar with that person's work, to be honest, but it sounds very very interesting. There are two other books I just want to recommend. Could we touch briefly on uh, what's, what I know as the pastoral epistles, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, written by Paul, allegedly. But in fact, most scholars think they are uh, forgeries. And indeed Ephesus, uh, Ephes- Ephesus, uh, um, Ephesians rather, and Colossians may be forgeries as well. And um, I just want to recommend this book uh, by the redoubtable uh, Bar Ehrman, called Ford, yes. uh, Writing in the Name of God, Why the Bible's Authors Are Not Who We Think They Are. Meaning, Absolutely. you mentioned 1 Peter, uh apparently written by the apostle peter probably not to peter is almost universally seen as a forgery by virtually all scholars and historians in the world this other book by the way is actually one of my favorites forgery and Counterforgery: the use of literary deceit in early christian polemics also by a certain professor uh um i have read every page of this book um Uh, that's a kind of those you see bart bart is a good friend of mine a much more scholarly book by the way yeah this is a popular one for uh general public Uh, this is for the scholars this one contains a lot of meat and is very highly regarded by experts specialists in the field from uh yale uh, and duke uh, and boston university as a groundbreaking piece of scholarship showing in fact why there are forgeries in the new testament and why in fact it was not an acceptable practice contrary to what many Christian scholars have claimed, and that if the early church had known, like to Peter, uh, known about the fact that it was a forgery, it would have not have been included absolutely. in the New Testament. And this is quite...
0: No, they, they absolutely believe what Papias and others say, and Barth covers that well. They believe, you know, Matthew was a follower, and he wrote this and that. And the nice thing about Bart's titles there is he goes ahead and uses the word forged, exactly and that takes courage and I, does, the yeah. first the first scholar i heard to do that was morton smith years ago we were in a, a seminar at the society of biblical literature and we're talking about uh, paul's <laughs> letters and it was uh, I, I gave a paper at that seminar and morton smith raised his hand he was in the audience this great amazing scholar and he says well in the forgery we know as Ephesians. And he literally introduced it that way. what he said? Yeah, yeah. And everybody's like, what? I mean, what did you just say in the secondary letter or in the... Well, yeah,
1: yeah, the pseudo-pickleful letter, letter, which means exactly the same thing. It's just in
0: Greek. Yeah, that's right. Remember, the word pseudo means fake. False. False. Fake. Exactly. False writings. The false writings. No, I absolutely agree with Bart and you know he's got a course now he's, he's it's called Paul and Jesus i i haven't uh, signed up for it or but he just started it so we'll we'll push his course a little bit <laughs> but i assume he's going to talk about this very thing that we're dealing with in this dichotomy
1: he, he discusses us. this already in his other uh, other books uh, academic books i've read so he's actually not presenting new new material in terms of no. no. but obviously it's it's a course online and so on for people to access uh, as well but um, right
0: uh, the books are always better. Buy the books, oh, Go deep. yeah. Always Go deep.
1: yeah. Uh, don't do
0: YouTube channels
1: but, <clears throat> apart from blogging theology and your channel, of course. Uh, well, well, thank you very much indeed.
0: Thank uh, you, Paul, once yeah, again. I hope April, people learn uh, and read yeah. and dig deep, get all the books and study. And uh, it's very enlightening, very exciting. Appreciate indeed. talking to you.
1: Well, hopefully, insh- inshallah, we were back again. In the future, talk about other other topics, which we will uh, announce in due course. But thank you very much for your time, Dr. James. Very good. Good to see you.